1: Hey, Hoops fans, don't just watch all the NBA playoffs action. Be a part of it with FanDuel, an official partner of the NBA. Right now, all new customers get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. Just place any bet on the NBA playoffs, and if you don't win, you'll get up to $1,000 back in site credit. The app is easy and safe to use. You get your winnings fast, and there's tons of betting options. My favorite bet from the first round is I think the Sixers are going to lose to the Toronto Raptors. I think it's going to get ugly for James Harden in particular. Download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook app, today using promo code Jason T. And place your risk-free first bet for a chance to take home a W on basketball's biggest stage. Remember to use promo code Jason T for this amazing offer. 21 plus and present in select states only. First online real money wager only. first deposit required bonus issued is non-withdrawable site credit that expires 14 days after receipt restrictions apply see full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash rg in colorado iowa michigan new jersey pennsylvania illinois or virginia call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in arizona call 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in connecticut dial 1-800-9-WITH-IT in indiana dial 1-877-770-STOP in louisiana Dial 1 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y to 467 369 in New York. Tennessee Redline is 1 889 9789. In Wyoming, dial 1 800 522 4700 or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at the Volume. I'm Jason Timp. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope you're all having a great start to your week. The playoffs have officially started, or I guess the play in tournament, which is basically the playoffs. This is going to be one of the most interesting playoff runs of our lifetimes, I think. There's just an unbelievably loaded field with a ton of talent. I personally can't wait. We are going to break down that Cavs Nets game, which went about exactly as I expected. And then we're going to spend the second half of the show focusing on a breakdown of what I think is going to be the most interesting series in the first round, which is Brooklyn versus Boston as a result of tonight's play-in game. I'm not going to tell you guys who I'm picking until the end of the video, but I do think that series is going seven games. That's how close those teams are. We're going to get into the weeds of what that series is going to look like. And then for those of you guys listening on the podcast... I'm going to tack on a couple of breakdowns I did earlier having to do with the Bucks-Bulls series and the Sixers-Raptors series. I made predictions for both of those series. Stick around to the end, and you guys will hear those as well. So let's get into this game tonight between the Cavs and the Nets. So in my uh, play-in breakdown, my preview that I did, I picked Brooklyn, which is to be expected. They're the better team. But the big reason why I picked Brooklyn is because of the fact that Brooklyn's perimeter initiators are so much better than Cleveland's, which goes without saying. However, Cleveland lost their biggest advantage in that matchup. With Jared Allen on the floor, the front court of the Cavaliers would be so imposing as to allow the Cavs some margin for error with their stars. Because obviously Darius Garland Garland and Karis LeVert can't go punch for punch with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. That's an absurd thing to expect to happen. So you have to have advantages elsewhere on the floor in order to make up for that. I talk about this a lot in my breakdown of the Bucks bulls series, which you guys will hear later. So if I'm trying to over outplay Giannis with DeMar DeRozan, that's not going to work. But the Bucks are really bad at guarding the three-point line. So if you're a good three-point shooting team that ger- generates a ton of three-point shots, you might be able to make up some of that gap. Problem is, the Bulls don't generate any three-point shots. They literally generate the fewest three-point shots per game in the entire NBA, so their ability to attack the Bucks' ba- uh, greatest weakness is not there. And so it's going to become a battle of the stars, and the Bucks just have better stars. And that's what happened to the Cavs tonight. Losing Jared Allen, they lost their interior advantage, which is something that they would have been able to use in that type of game to try to make up for some of that talent disparity, and they didn't have that. So it was going to come down to Karis Lavert and Darius Garland trying to go punch for punch. With Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And that went about exactly as you expected. It was 40-20 to 20 after the first quarter. In that first quarter, Katie and Kyrie combined for 19 points and 10 assists. Karis Lavert and Darius Garland only managed 10 points and 2 assists. And they looked kind of out of sorts, forcing things. Both of those guys seemed intent to just drive into Brooklyn's rim protection. Brooklyn, we're going to get into their defense here in a little bit when we're talking about the Celtics series. But Brooklyn has a lot of interior rim protection. Andre Drummond's a good rim protect uh, rim protector. Nick Claxton's a good rim protector. And Kevin Durant, who you saw hit the gas on the defensive end tonight, also when he's dialed in is a very very effective rim protector. So, when you are playing a team like that that has guys camping around the rim, you can't drive into them and try to finish. That's playing directly into their uh, into their strengths. You have to pass out of that and try to get open shots away from the rim, or stop short and go to your floater, or your pull-up 15-footer, your pull-up 10-footer, anything other than driving right into the super tall guy that's going to block your shot, or you're going to have to distort your shot so much that there's almost no chance of it going in. And so that went about exactly as I expected. Now, over the course of the game, Brooklyn led up a little bit, and the Cavs got back into it, but then here we are, Cavs back within six, late in the fourth quarter, KD goes down and makes a jump shot of what his patented one dribble pull-up to the right. Here comes Karis Levert, works into into the lane, drives into a bunch of traffic, and trips and falls. He ends up kicking it out to Evan Mobley, and it gets worked around, but your perimeter initiator tripped and fell in the lane. They go down the other way. Kevin Durant makes another two-dribble pull-up going along the right side, and here comes Darius Garland, gets into the lane, but he panics because here comes a rim protector, and he throws up a janky left-handed layup and shoots it all the way over the rim. So even when things got close at the end of the game, it came down to we have Kevin Durant, you have Karis Lavert and Darius Garland. I like our chances, and that's how it went. And so in this particular matchup, there was just too much star power for them to be for the Cavs to be able to overcome. That's why it went the way that it went. So let's get into this series between the Nets and the Celtics, which I think is going to be an incredibly interesting matchup. So we're going to break this into three sections. We're going to take a look at what the series looks like with the Nets on offense. Then we'll look at it with the Celtics on offense. And then I want to look at the Tatum versus Durant matchup, which is how the public is going to view it, As though, although basketball is always a whole lot more complicated than that. So let's start with the Nets on offense. First of all, the Nets have a 122.8 offensive rating with KD and Kyrie on the floor, which is absolutely amazing. The Celtics, with Marcus Smart, Al Horford, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown on the floor, had to take Robert Williams out of that, obviously, because he's hurt. But with those four guys on the floor, they have a defensive rating of 98.8, which is absolutely amazing. So this is the side of the floor where you're going to have one of the best offenses that you could possibly have in a playoff series versus one of the best defenses that you can possibly have in a playoff series. The other thing that's going to be really interesting is I expect the Celtics to switch everything, which is what they've been doing all season, but with KD and Kyrie in particular, it's going to test Boston's willingness to avoid double teaming. This is something that I talked about all season. There's switching defenses all over the league, but there's different variations of it. You have teams like Boston that don't send a ton of help and leave guys on an island and hope to stagnate you. Then you have teams like Dallas that send a ton of help and a ton of uh, the Toronto's another team like this ton of help ton of doubling tons of stunting lots of gimmicky stuff and there usually is a lot of opportunity to swing the ball around the perimeter to try to get open shots on the back line but when you're playing Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving I'm not sure you can get away with staying in, in single coverage you're probably going to have to start sending multiple bodies especially on screen and roll actions to both of those guys this is where the Rob Williams loss can be really concerning because this is the, it's the concept of backline help. So when you send two defenders to a screen and roll, let's say that Kevin Durant brings the ball up the floor and he wants to work against Marcus Smart. So you come and set a ball screen and Tatum and Smart both go with Kevin Durant. Well, chances are you're going to have someone rolling to the basket into that short roll area right around the free throw line. Probably going to be Bruce Brown or someone like that in that position. When you dump the ball there, you're playing four on three on the back end. And that's where having that backline defender, the guy that steps over from the weak side to try to disrupt that action, becomes so important. And Rob Williams has been one of the best backline defenders in the league this year. Him being out of the picture turns that into, yeah, Al Horford's going to be there a lot, but it's going to be a lot of Daniel Tice, or maybe they'll have to go small sometimes. It changes that whole dynamic on the backline. Bruce Brown uh, played really well tonight, but he has, at stretches over the course of the season, struggled in that type of situation, catching the ball in the short roll because he doesn't have a great floater. He's a little bit undersized. He struggles around shot blocking. So it's an interesting dynamic there, how the Celtics are going to manage when they decide to double team and send help at Kyrie and KD. And when they do, will they have the athleticism on the back line to be able to compensate for that? This is where the question becomes, where do you go? This year, for the most part, the Celtics have been going with Al Horford at the four and Robert Williams at the five, especially in pivotal moments. They go huge because Al Horford and Robert Williams can both switch on to perimeter players. So with Rob Williams out of the picture, you have a decision to make. Do you prioritize a guy like Daniel Tice, another big who's nowhere near as good as Robert Williams? Or do you go small and go with someone like Derek White, stick with your switching and essentially bank on that uh, your athleticism and your effort to compensate with that dip in size. I would go with Derek White, but I think you're going to see a lot of both, but it'll be interesting to see as the series progresses which direction they decide to go. The question becomes, which matchups do you attack if you're Brooklyn? So when you play switching basketball, usually it's it's kind of, it's it's a waste of effort to attack the guy you're originally guarding. So if Kevin Durant brings the ball up the floor and he's going against Jason Tatum, yeah, he can create shots against Jason Tatum, but if you know the Boston Celtics are switching every screen, why would you waste your energy going against Boston's best perimeter defender? You're better off trying to find someone else, someone you have an advantage against, whether, whether that's Marcus Smart or someone like Derek White or someone like Daniel Tice, or if you like your chances against Al Horford. So the interesting dynamic in this series, and we're going to get to this when we get to the Celtics on offense, is which matchups are the Nets going to attack most frequently? And this is where the Rob Williams injury becomes another issue. Whatever your 30-something minutes out of Rob Williams is going to be dispersed among a mix of perimeter players like Derek White and you know Peyton Pritchard, guys like that, and uh, a big guy, someone like Daniel Tice, right? That just opens up 34 extra minutes where there's a better matchup for a guy like Kevin Durant to attack. That's an interesting wrinkle in this series. I would have picked, to be clear, I would have picked the Celtics to win this series in five if Robert Williams was healthy. That's how good the Celtics were. But Robert Williams was that perfect fifth guy to put alongside Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Al Horford. And taking him out of that picture just decreases the Celtics' margin for error. That's why I think this series is going to be pushed longer and probably to seven games. So Nets on offense is going to be the most interesting dynamic to this series. One of the best defenses that I've seen in recent NBA history versus one of the best offenses that I've seen in recent NBA history. Those two going against each other is going to be really interesting and it's going to be really close and competitive. Let's move to the Celtics on offense. So this year, first of all, everybody who's been watching the Nets needs to reconsider the way that they evaluate their defense. So... From the top down looking, you think, oh, the Nets are a terrible defensive team. They finished the year 20th in defensive rating. You see all these games where Charlotte comes into Brooklyn and KD and Kyrie are playing and they hang like 133 points on them and they lose. And you're like, oh, the Nets don't play any defense. They don't have a chance. Well, we need to throw that out because the reality of the situation is with Kevin Durant on the floor this season, they've actually been a pretty good defense. With KD on the floor, they have a 109.7 defensive rating. That's 114.4 with him off. And Kevin Durant's been out so long this season that that 114.4 number is poisoning the overall metric for the season. So they're 20th in defense on the season, but they're actually a top 10 number with Kevin Durant on the floor. That's not a perfect logic because every team has bad lineups mixing up with their data. But the bottom line is, is the Nets are actually a pretty decent defense with Kevin Durant on the floor. The Celtics on that end of the floor have been good, not great. That same four-man grouping that I told you about, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown was scoring about 115 points per 100 possessions with that four on the floor. That's an okay number. So this side of the floor is going to be a little more uh, interesting on the, with the or a little bit different. The Nets on offense, it's an amazing offense versus an amazing defense. With the Celtics on offense, it's going to be a pretty good offense versus a pretty good defense, a totally different type of uh, of dynamic. I expect the Nets to double Tatum as the series progresses. In their last matchup, when the the Celtics went into Brooklyn and won that game, they left Tatum on an island for the most part, and he killed the Nets because he was able to attack specific matchups. We were talking earlier about which matchups would Brooklyn attack. Who would Kyrie and KD attack? It's going to have to be someone like Daniel Tyson, the minutes that he's on the floor, someone like Derek White, maybe Marcus Smart if you think you can shoot over the top. Those are the kinds of guys that they'll be attacking. Boston's going to have better matchups to attack. You're always going to have someone like Seth Curry on the floor. You're going to have moments where you can attack Patty Mills. Kyrie Irving, he's an okay defensive player in in certain matchups, but you're going to be able to shoot over the top of him. So Boston's going to have better matchups to attack. That gives Tatum a margin for error, which we'll get into a little bit when we talk about the Tatum-Durant matchup. But I think as the series progresses, the Nets are going to end up having to send multiple bodies at Jason Tatum, which is something that he's been seeing a ton as the season has come to an end, especially over the course of the last few months. This is where it gets interesting because the Nets have a great backline. You've got Nick Claxton. You've got Andre Drummond. You've got Kevin Durant. We talked about that earlier, how dominant they were against the Cavs tonight. They have a ton of size right around the basket. So I expect the Nets to overplay the paint and double-team Tatum. So it's going to be a lot of Tatum coming off a of screen and rolls or being doubled in the open floor and guys making decisions out of the short roll, guys like Marcus Smart. This is where corner three-point shooting is going to become really, really important. The Celtics are going to get a lot of wide-open corner threes against this Nets defensive scheme this year, and the Celtics are only okay shooting out there. Derek White has been a really bad three-point shooter since he came to the Celtics, but strangely enough, he's actually okay in the corner. He's been shooting 42% from the corner since he's been a Celtic. Al Horford's right around 40%. Marcus Smart's like 37% in the corner. Jalen Brown is like... 34% in the corner. The corner three is one of the weirdest shots in basketball for a lot of shooters. It's a shorter distance, but the optics of it are very different and you're usually stationary, which is difficult to adjust to in the up and down flow of the game. So a big part of this series is going to be, will the Celtics be able to make corner threes when the Nets double Jason Tatum on the perimeter and they make decisions out of the short roll and the Nets overplay the paint with their size? That's going to be an interesting aspect. Whether or not the Celtics make those threes could go a long way to determining this series. So let's look at the Tatum versus Durant matchup. Tatum has ascended in my book this season. I call him a bona fide superstar. He, it's hard to say where he places in the league. I'd put him with John Morant and Devin Booker as guys who are kind of fighting in that 9, 10, 11 range of players in the NBA. Like, Firmly beneath the guys above them, but firmly above the rest. And call it like the third tier of players in the NBA. That's a compliment to Jason Tatum. Kevin Durant's the best player in the world, in my opinion. So on the surface, you look at that like, can Jason Tatum outplay Kevin Durant? That's a lot to ask. But this is where those matchups become such an important detail. Kevin Durant's going to be going against the best defense in basketball and Jason Tatum's going to be going against an okay defense. Now, if the Nets double him all series long, that takes that decision out of Jason Tatum's hands. I trust Jason Tatum to make the right play, to get the ball to the short roll, make the right reads, and give the Celtics a chance to make plays on the back end. But in single coverage situations, Jason Tatum simply has a better selection of players to attack. He's going to be able to pick on Patty Mills. He's going to be able to pick on Kyrie Irving. He's going to be able to pick on Seth Curry. He's going to be able to pick on slow-footed bigs like Andre Drummond, on the perimeter if he gets a chance. Durant's going to have lesser... He's going to have greater defensive players that he has to choose from uh, who he's going to attack. You saw that specifically take place the last time the Celtics played the Nets and beat them up in Barclays Center. At the end of the game, Kevin Durant was coming down the floor shooting pull-up jump shots over Jason Tatum and Robert Williams and Al Horford, and he was still making some shots, but they were tougher shots. And meanwhile, Jason Tatum was getting down the floor and attacking Seth Curry out of the high post and getting to his jump shot and knocking stuff down. The Celt- the Nets ended up having to double team him in the open floor when he would get Seth Curry in those isolation situations, and they were getting wide open looks out of it. So again, Durant's the better player. Tatum has an advantage. He has more margin for error because his defense is better. And... Uh, Kevin Durant doesn't have the same thing behind him. So that'll be the interesting dynamic. This is why I don't like it when people say, like if Boston wins a series, I wouldn't say Tatum beat Durant. Tatum's better than Durant. No, no, no. It's a team sport. But I think Durant's a significantly better player. Tatum has more margin for error. That gives him an opportunity to win. So this is as close to a 50-50 series as I could possibly imagine. Home court plays a big role. Boston's a really, really difficult place to play. But Kevin Durant is impervious to that sort of thing, as you've seen so many times over the years, including his Game 5 and Game 7 in Milwaukee last year. In a series this close, that is split by the thinnest of margins, I have to go to the better player. So I'm picking Kevin Durant in the Nets to beat the Celtics in seven games, based purely on the fact that Kevin Durant's the best player in the series. Everything else to me is so split evenly down the middle. Both teams have advantages. Both teams, I think, will have moments in the series where it feels like they're in control. Home court will play a role. I think Kevin Durant overcomes that. Nets in seven. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate
0: wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, The cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not
1: available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster growing hair with less shedding. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrifol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription. And free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops, that's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrifol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Hoops, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrifol.com, promo code Hoops. All right, let's move on to the Sixers and the Raptors. This is one of the most interesting series in the first round. A couple of wrinkles. Matisse is not allowed to play in Toronto because he's unvaccinated. I'm not as concerned about this because Toronto is a massive help team. They do a ton of help digging, doubling, things along those lines. They are a very disruptive defense, so I think shooting is going to be a very, very important factor for the Sixers. And I've talked about a lot on the show about the difference between using Georges Niang and Matisse Theibel and their pros and cons. Matisse Theibel is this incredibly disruptive defensive player, but he's not a great shooter. And Georges Niang is a 40% three-point shooter at decent volume of guns. He's not scared to take any shot, but he's not a great defensive player. In that trade-off, because of the way Toronto plays as an over-help, over-double, over-dig, over-crowd type of team... You need guys that can make you pay on the back end. So I think Georges Niang might actually be a better option than them. So I don't really look at the Matisse-Thibel thing as that much of a problem. I think the Raptors are going to win the series in six games. The reason why comes down to the fact that this particular Toronto team and the style that they play directly is going to affect the two best players on the Sixers. And we're going to let, let let's just get let's just get into the weeds a little bit here. So, first of all, Joel Embiid. So, the Raptors have won 3 of their 4 matchups with the Sixers this year, in large part because of their ability to disrupt Joel Embiid, particularly double teaming. So, as Joel Joel Embiid has talked about this a lot. He talked about this in his appearance on the JJ Redick podcast, but he credited Toronto as one of the best teams guarding him because of their ability to just stunt and double and all those things that I've been talking about. Here's the issue in those three games, Joel Embiid's only played in three of the four matchups in those three games. Joel Embiid has only managed eight assists against all of that double teaming and all of that overhelping. And this is an issue that I've talked about a lot with Joel Embiid. It's very similar to an issue that Anthony Davis has. He doesn't see help very well. He's not good at attracting double teams and making that, Killer pass. There's always passes out of a double team that are easier, but that abandon the advantage. Like a quick, uh, a, like Anthony Davis does this all the time. Catch it in the post, and a double team will come, and he'll kind of just dribble away from the double out to the perimeter and just find the first outlet pass to the wing. As a you know, as a guard does like a V cut to try to get open on the perimeter. But once that pass is made, the advantage is gone. Now you have a guard with the ball thirty five feet from the basket, and you accomplished nothing. Joel Embiid does a lot of that as well. The best. Post passers in the league, the two in my opinion are Nikola Jokic and LeBron James. What they do is, as the double comes, they get stronger with the basketball and advance ground and 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 keep their head up the whole time and look for the killer pass, the pass that compromises the defense you making that double. It's usually to the weak side corner because good double teams will always take away the easy reads and make the longest pass the only available pass because if they can make you throw a looping skip pass that gives you more time to recover back. But guys like Jokic and LeBron, they're hitting that weak side corner man in the pocket for a three every single time against these doubles. And if you to stunt at that and try to take away the corner three, they'll hit a cutter or they'll, they're just, they're very, very adept at taking advantage of those types of coverages. And Joel Embiid is not for him to only get eight assists. And by the way, he had eight turnovers as well. So eight assists, eight turnovers in three games against that Toronto aggressive help defense. That doesn't spell well for Embiid's ability to solve the chess match that will be this playoff series. Then we go to James Harden. In the two matchups against Toronto as a 76er, he's 8 for 24 from the field. He was 3 for 12 in their last matchup. 1 for 8 from 3. 23 assists, but 9 turnovers... To go with it. This just comes down to uh, James Harden's overall decline, which is something that I've uh, chronicled in depth on this show. We're not going to get too much into it, but the gist of it is James Harden is not athletic enough anymore to consistently beat people off the dribble. And everything about his game is predicated on rim pressure because when he's beating people off the dribble, the defender plays further off of him and on his heels, which allows James Harden to get quality looks out of his step back which then opens everything else up. But when he's not driving to the basket, well, defenders are on their toes. They're in an advancing position guarding James Harden, leaning onto that step back. So now the step backs James Harden is taking are contested and usually low percentage. He's just trying to draw fouls at that point, and he's not generating that rim pressure. When he's getting to the basket, that's when he opens up his ability as a playmaker as well. Bottom line, if James Harden can't create quality looks Against this Raptors defense, the way he used to when he was, you know, four or five years ago, I don't know that they're going to be able to create enough advantages here. The other thing, too. The Toron- Toronto's had a lot of success against the Sixers with a lot of guys out with injury. You've had Fred Van Vliet dealing with a knee issue that's hel- ha- held him out a lot. They've beat the Sixers a couple times without Fred Van Vliet. OG Ananobi has just returned. You're going to see a more offensively talented version of this Raptors team in this postseason run. There's a, uh, a group in particular that I'm excited to see. Fred Van Vliet with Gary Trent Jr., then OG Pascal and Scotty Barnes in the front court that team is that lineup has only played 345 minutes this year. That that allows the the Raptors to play a lot of the same style they've been playing with the younger athletes but with a ton more offensive firepower. This team is going to be a huge pain in the butt to beat this year and they have specifically had success against the Sixers because of their inability to create advantages against a defense like this. And then last but not least, the Sixers have a similar issue that the Bulls are going to have in their first round series with the Bucks. The Raptors give up a ton of three-point shots, just like Milwaukee does, because of their overhelp defense. So it's very important for you to be able to generate a lot of three-point shots in your offense, and the Sixers are 27th in the NBA in three-pointers attempted per game. So similar to Chicago, there's a gaping issue there with their ability to exploit the Raptors' very specific defensive weakness so I expect the Raptors to win in six games in Canada in front of their home crowd we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel it is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano it is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league every week the five-time all-star number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind the scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere.
1: This season, the Bulls lost all four matchups with the Bucks. I will be predicting the Bucks to sweep the Bulls. I'm not even sure that they have enough advantages to take one game off of Milwaukee. I want to start by throwing out a couple of stats for you, and we'll get a little bit into the weeds. First of all, the Bulls are 24th in paint points allowed per 100 possessions. Not a big shock. They don't have a great front line. They don't have a ton of size and athleticism, and they've struggled defending on the perimeter this year ever since Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball went down. 24th and paint points allowed, allowed is a big concern when you're going up against Giannis. They, uh, they are very good at defending the three-point line, which is an interesting dynamic there because the Bucs are one of the best teams in the league at generating good quality three-point shots. The Bulls only give up 14.3 wide-open threes per game, which is second best in the NBA. The Bucs generate 20.1 wide-open threes per game, which is second best in the NBA. So there's an interesting little clash there the issue is is that as I've always told you guys the B- the Bucks have a catastrophic flaw in their defense in that they allow a ton of threes. They they sell out to protect the paint and they're bad at rotating on the back end to take away three-point shots. But the problem is is the Bulls only attempt 28.8 threes per game, which is dead last in the NBA. So the Bulls are not set up to attack the Bucks very specific weakness. So if you can't match the top end talent, if you can't handle Giannis and Chris Middleton, which obviously they can't, the, the, the star power of the Bucks is better. You better have some advantage out there that you plan on unleashing on them, something that they would struggle with. So for instance, if the Bulls were an excellent three-point shooting team that generated a ton of three-point shots, I would say, hey, yes, you can't stop Giannis, but the Bucks are bad at guarding the three-point line. You're great at generating wide open threes. That's your opportunity to gain an advantage, but the Bulls don't have that advantage, which makes me feel like this is going to end quickly and it's going to end ugly. To look at the matchups, the way they were guarding each other in their last matchup, they put Alex Caruso on Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton can shoot over the top. I love Alex Caruso. Excellent defensive player. I would have him on an all-defense team this year if he had played enough games, but it's he, he's constantly had a problem with this type of matchup. Not, not his, not by any of the, anything that's his fault. It's just that shorter defensive players, even if they are very, very good at what they do, uh, very tall offensive players can shoot over the top. You guys all probably remember last year a game in Philly where Tobias Harris made a game winner over the top of Alex Crusoe. It's just what happens when a 6'9 or 6'8 guy goes up against a 6'5 or 6'6 guy and has that ability to shoot over the top. They put, um, uh, Giannis, they guarded with Patrick Williams, which is to be expected. Patrick Williams is thin, very athletic, very good defensive player, but he's thin, not as tall as Giannis. He's giving up a lot of ground there. The Bulls made up for that by doing a ton of stunting and crowding and doubling. Like I, uh, uh, In their last matchup, they held Giannis to just 13 shots. Uh, Giannis was content to make the right play, kind of just draw in that attention and let his teammates go to work. I like that matchup in the sense that I think he can hold his own well enough with them crowding. I just think the Bucs are going to have tons of success scoring around him. It looks like Zach Levine didn't play in their last matchup, but I think that's going to be Drew Holiday there. And then Vucevic is going to be guarding Brook Lopez. The only interesting dynamic there is Brook Lopez is a drop coverage big. When he's in the lineup, they run a very traditional drop coverage. And Nikola Vucevic is a pick-and-pop guy, a pick-and-pop is a classic counter to a drop coverage because in a drop coverage, the big has to to fall back to contain the ball handler and the guard has to chase over the top. So if the big is dropping back and the guard is chasing over the top and the, the screener pops to the three-point line, he's probably going to be completely unguarded. They did get a lot of wide-open looks for Vucevic out of those sorts of actions. So that's something that you'll see a lot in that particular matchup. And then the last matchup you'll see is they're going to put Wesley Matthews on Demar Derozan. Um, Demar Derozan has been the best player on the Bulls this year. He's having a fantastic season. Wesley Matthews is arguably the perfect type of defender to put on Demar Derozan. I've talked about this a lot on my on my uh, Twitter feed. If you guys ever uh, see the stuff that I do with basketball videos and skill development, like uh, the the fadeaway jump shot, which is what Demar Derozan uses as his bread and butter. It's impossible to guard up top. That's the whole point of the fadeaway. You're turning and fading, and you're usually initiating contact before, so you don't see a ton of blocked fadeaways, so you're not going to disrupt a guy up top. But what you're supposed to do defensively on a guy who's taking fadeaways is try to disrupt the base as much as you can. Anytime you're bumping bodies in post-up situations, the refs do allow a good amount of contact to go without calling fouls. And if you can disrupt the base of the fadeaway, you can uh, affect the lift. And those fadeaways, are, I always call them, they're like dunks. In order to make a fadeaway, you have to get a ton of lift in order to get that separation so that it feels like an open shot at the top of the shot. So Wesley Matthews is an interesting matchup there because he's one of the best undersized wing defenders in the league because of his, the way he disrupts the base. He keeps his feet sliding. He sits really low. He has a low center of gravity. And he just pushes on your base to keep you off balance all the time. That's why he's had success in the past against a lot of the bigger scoring forwards that we have in the league. So I like the way that the Milwaukee can guard Chicago. Chicago's uh, uh, Milwaukee's greatest defensive weakness also happens to be Chicago's greatest offensive weakness. So I don't think they have an advantage there. And The Bulls don't defend the paint well, and Giannis is just an absolute monster in the paint, especially in the postseason, as we know. I think this is going to be a sweep. I would be shocked if the Bulls even took one game off of them. All right, guys, that's all I have for tonight. As always, I appreciate your support, and I'll see you guys in a couple of days.